Welcome to The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and this is a special episode. I was supposed to be in Israel and the Palestinian territories this week for a trip where I was to meet with people both within the Palestinian territories and Israel uh, seeking to end the conflict. And this is a trip I planned before the recent hostilities, the uh, Hamas atrocities and the looming invasion of Gaza. All of that happened after I planned the trip. And so I, for obvious reasons, decided to cancel it. And now I've extended my trip here in India. I'm now on my fourth week in uh, India and the region. And I have a little bit of extra time. And so what I decided to do is go back and, and reread some of the best books I've found on the conflict and to summarize for you a history up until 2000, which I think is a turning point in the conflict uh, for reasons that I'll, I'll mention towards the end of this. But uh, the reason why I'm doing this podcast, it's different format than anything we've ever done before. We don't really do a lot of history alone, but what I'm seeing on the internet uh, amongst people in the United States especially is a battle of historical anecdotes where people are cherry picking different facts, often like in isolation, correct facts about the conflict and uh, extrapolating from those facts. And I think people aren't really acknowledging the full breadth of the history. And so what I wanted to do was give the full history. I am somebody who has pointed, some would say some controversial views on the conflict. I certainly have opinions about it. Uh, my goal here though, is in, in listening to this history, you won't know what my opinions are if you didn't know them before. I try to go out of my way to include information that is inconvenient to people who agree with me about the conflict. Uh, and one thing I wanna mention to you is that there's no one way to read history, right? Like when we talk about the United States, for example, there are a lot of things that have happened in our history that are horrible. Uh, and the question is, what meaning do you make from that history? And how do you square that history with contemporary events, right? So uh, in giving you this history, I'm not telling you what you should believe today about that history, but I do think this history will really help you understand some of the claims that people are making. And you also get to decide when you get to start the clock. I think different people who talk about this conflict uh, decide, is it 1967? Is it 1973? Is it the establishment of the state of Israel? Is it biblical times, right? You get to make that decision for yourself, obviously, as you read this data, and it's okay not to have an opinion about that, which I think a lot of reasonable people don't. Uh, I also wanna give a disclaimer that my pronunciations here are gonna be poor. I don't speak Hebrew or Arabic, so names and places and concepts, often I'm, I'm gonna do my best to pronounce them, but inevitably I'm not gonna get those right. And one final thing here is that there's no one great unbiased book on the history, but taken together, you can piece together a strong sense of things. I try to use both Palestinian sources and Israeli sources and, and people outside of the region here. Uh, and in certain cases, uh, obviously this, there's a lot of history of a people whether they're Palestinians, Israelis, or other people involved in the conflict. And sometimes the best sources are people within those communities because there are language barriers and access to documents. Uh, and so with all that said, this is gonna be a longer than normal podcast as I set out here. I've got a lot of notes. I don't know how long this will take. I'll try to be as exciting as I possibly can in reading this history, but it's gonna be a little tedious by design. Like my job here isn't necessarily to entertain you, but to give you something you could listen to you know, on that long car ride or whatever, and just get a full breadth of the history. Now, there are so many atrocities that have happened over the course of the past hundred years 
that I'm going to have to leave out a lot of individual incidents. And I'm, I'm just saying that outright. I'm going to get messages saying, why didn't you mention this or mention that? I do my best to try to pick issues of significance and, and moments of significance that have been till this day mentioned and written about and that seem like turning points in the conflict, but I'm, I'm never really going to miss some stuff. And so we have this pre-2000 period of time, the year 2000, and we're going to break it into three different phases. Uh, one phase is up to the establishment of the state of Israel. And the key questions that you're going to have to ask yourself, I'm not going to answer these questions for you, but these are questions that people ask, uh, is who was the first group to arrive in the region and what significance do you give to that? What does it mean to be Jewish and Israeli? What does it mean to be Arab and Palestinian? Uh, whether the establishment of the state of Israel was wise and moral, and whether the Palestinians left on their own volition or they were forced out. So that's phase one, pre-independence. Then we have the post-independence world, uh, and I call this the era of the conventional wars. And the key questions here is who invaded who first and who was the aggressor? What to make of land captured in the course of battle? What do external threats from Israel's neighbors do to shape its moral and tactical calculus in the next phase of the war? That's the second phase. Third phase is the occupation, the rise of the PLO, Hamas, and Hezbollah. Uh, and I would also add in like the rise of Likud and the sort of days leading up to the emergence of Netanyahu, who I think shaped so much of the region's history since the mid-90s. Certain questions and issues to deal with in that phase are the moral and tactical implications of occupation, the morality of guerrilla tactics and terrorism, the legitimacy of Palestinian leaders under occupation, the morality of settlement construction, uh, American involvement, and the rise of Likud. Those are some of the issues and questions to ask in that third phase. So with that, let's get started here. So what is this area? It's a strip of land between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. It's not much larger than Belgium or Maryland. Some people say it's the size of New Jersey. It has a population of 13 million people. The Jews uh, arrive on the scene uh, around 1500 BCE. In 64 BCE, the Romans conquered Jerusalem and the area became part of the Roman Empire. If you ever a chance to visit Masada, uh, it, there's some riveting history there. It's probably one of the more interesting historical places I've ever visited. Uh, in 135 CE, after a series of revolts against Roman imperial rule, the Jews were dispersed. Some remained, uh, but mostly settled in Europe and other parts of the Arab world. The area was conquered by Arab Muslims in the seventh century, following the emergence of Islam in what is today Saudi Arabia. And over time, most of the population adopted Arabic as its language and Islam as its religion, but some Christians and Jews remained, not many, but some. Uh, in the 6th century, the area was conquered by the Ottomans, which is a Turkish dynasty who ruled it for a long, long time. Uh, they were Muslims, but not Arabic-speaking. Uh, they conquered most of the Arab lands of the Middle East, including the three most holy sites for Muslims, which is Mecca, Medina, and Jerusalem. In the Ottoman Middle East, there was no officially designated area called Palestine. Uh, area to the west of the Jordan River and south of Beirut was made up of three administrative districts. Uh, by the late 19th century, going back to the Jewish population, uh, they were mostly in western parts of the Russian Empire. Uh, many were forced to live under severe restrictions and violence. Uh, and one notable point came in 1881 with the assassination of the Tsar Alexander II. Jews were blamed for this, uh, which led to a series of pogroms and officially approved riots. Uh, the climate in Russia became unsafe for Jews. Uh, that was the sort of impetus, uh, among other things, uh, for Jews leaving Russia. Between 1882 and 1914, 
2.5 million Jews left Russia. The vast majority went to the U.S. and Europe. Uh, a small number, about 55,000, went to Palestine. Uh, this was aided by the development of the steamship in the 19th century. Uh, this early period is often called the first Aliyah, the first ascent, 1882 to 1903. These were mostly farmers, mostly from uh, what is considered Poland, which was part of Russia at the time. Key thinkers among that first Aliyah movement, uh, one was uh, Theodore Herzl. He was a lawyer and journalist. He wrote a book called The Jewish State, which was published in 1896. It called for Jews to form a single nation state. And in 1897, Herzl organized a Congress in Switzerland in which the World Zionist Organization, the WZO, was formed. Zionism, which was a term that had been used before, was defined by them as, quote, the creation of a home for the Jewish people in Palestine. Herzl's goals were diplomatic support from a great power in Europe and financial support from the diaspora community in the U.S. and Europe to purchase land. Uh, the Jewish National Fund uh, was set up in 1901 to buy land in Palestine. The newspaper Philistine uh, appealed to fellow Ar Arabs at the time not to sell land to Jewish immigrants. Uh, there were increasing references at the time to the term Palestine and Palestinian. Urban notables and the Arabic press called on the Ottoman government to halt immigration and land purchases. And at the time, the Ottomans did impose some restrictions. There's a little bit of back and forth here. Uh, but in 1914, uh, the key point here is the beginning of World War I. Um, the Jewish population at that point was around 75,000 or 7% of the population, so still relatively small at this point. The Ottoman Empire fatefully joined the Central Powers, which was Germany and Austria-Hungary. Thousands of Palestinians were drafted into the Ottoman army and a smaller number of Jews. Uh, the Jewish community was cut off uh, from Europe during this time, and the flow of money and immigrants dried up. In late 1917, the Ottoman forces in Palestine were defeated by the British, and in 1917, uh, in December, General Edmund Allenby led his troops into Jerusalem. Now, during the war, Britain made a series of edicts that contradicted each other. At various points, they you know, indicated that they were going to give land to the Palestinians, uh, or to a larger Arab state. There was this agreement called the Sykes-Picot Agreement of 1916, named after the French and British leaders who signed it. It looked ahead to the fall of the Ottoman Empire, which at that point was teetering, uh, and decided that the Arab lands would be allocated to distinct French and British spheres of influence. They wanted to give Syria and Lebanon to the French, Sinai in today's Egypt, uh, and Mesopotamia, Iraq to the British, and Palestine would be under some form of hybrid international control. But the biggest, by far the most significant edict given during World War I by the British was what was called the Balfour Declaration in 1917. And this was a letter written by British Foreign Secretary Arthur Balfour to Lord Rothschild, who was a leading British Jew. And Balfour expressed support for a national home for Jews in Palestine. And with 65 words, threw open and really created a seismic shift in uh, the direction of the region. He wrote, quote, his majesty's government views with favor the establishment in Palestine of a national home for Jewish people. The government will make every effort to bring this about. It is clearly understood that nothing shall be done which may harm the civil and religious rights of existing non-Jewish communities in Palestine or rights and political status enjoyed by Jews in any other country. This declaration didn't specify whether this would be a state with its own borders or its own government, but it was read by many Jews for the next 30 years as a promise by the British government of a Jewish state. Now, you may be asking yourself, what, why did the British decide to issue the Balfour Declaration in the first place to kind of throw their weights 
behind the Zionists uh, and the establishment of something uh, approaching a Jewish state, depending on how you read it, in the region. Now, it, this largely had to do with the war politics. So the members of the British government wanted to win over support of influential Jews in the U.S. and Russia for the Allied cause. Um, a lot of Jews have subsequently joked about how you know misunderstood uh, the British government was about the influence of those Jewish communities in those countries. But they, it seemed like they were trying to appeal to those groups. They also viewed Palestine as an overland route to oil reserves of Iraq, and that Britain was also planning to build a pipeline from Iraq to the port of Haifa in Palestine, where it could be shipped to Britain. Uh, Palestine was also 100 miles north of the Suez Canal. Balfour also, I think, had a, let's say, um, misunderstood view of, of what was happening in the country. He says, quote, we're not dealing with the wishes of an existing community, but are consciously seeking to reconstitute a new community and definitely building for a numerical Jewish majority in the future. So he and others at the time, I think, misunderstood this area is kind of a barren area, but there were populations there of Arabs who lived there. In 1920, there was an international conference in San Remo, Italy. Britain and France acquire mandates over the Arab lands taken from the Ottomans. They were ordered to, quote, govern until such time that the Arab countries are able to stand alone, end quote. France was given control over Syria and Lebanon. Britain was given Iraq, Palestine, and what became known as Transjordan. In 1923, those awards were formally recognized by the League of Nations, and under Article 22 of the League's Covenant, France and Britain were responsible for preparing those countries for self-government. In the case of Palestine, this is crucial, the Balfour Declaration was written into the British mandate and was made more favorable to the Zionists. So now the British were authorized to lease with a Jewish agency to facilitate the Jewish immigration and to encourage the close settlement by Jews on the land. There was no specific reference to the Arabs. And Britain offered an elected legislative assembly to the Arabs in 1922 and 1928, but Britain refused to give the uh, Arabs a majority of seats, so the Arabs declined. Um, the Palestinian historian Rashid Khalidi, uh, who I think has become a very popular read, I think, amongst a certain segment of the American population lately, uh, wrote that at the time that the Arabs of Palestine felt like they were in an iron cage. They kind of had nowhere to go. Throughout the 1920s, the British government talked kind of out of both sides of their mouth. They would reassure the Arabs that they had no intention of creating a Jewish state in Palestine. The first high commissioner in Palestine was a guy named Sir Herbert Samuel, and he said that Britain had never consented and would never consent to the establishment of Jewish state. Winston Churchill, who was then a colonial secretary, would sometimes make assurances that were similar to that and sometimes express support for Zionism. It was all very confusing. Uh, by 1920, Jews made up 10% of the population. In 1928, more emigrated than immigrated, and U.S. and Europe were popular destinations. Uh, the key institutions here uh, were the Jewish Agency, which in practice, this was the government of the Jewish population in Palestine. They liaised with the British government and the controlled settlement building. Uh, there was an, another organization called Histradut, definitely saying that wrong, which is a Zionist labor federation. They promoted Jewish workers. Uh, they were uh, Their early leader was David Ben-Gurion. He came from Poland at the age of 20. Uh, he was an ardent socialist. He was committed to the development of the kibbutzim. Um, he was kind of like the Israeli George Washington. He was a dominant figure in the interwar years. He became head of the Jewish agency in 1935 and in 1948 became the first prime minister of Israel. Hishradut and Ben-Gurion's circles became the foundation of what eventually became Israeli Labor Party. Uh, and in the uh, 1920s, Jewish landholdings doubled. In the post-war years, affluent and middle-class Palestinian families and religious leaders formed the Muslim Christian Associations. These bodies asserted a Palestinian sense of national identity. 
and they said, quote, Palestine is Arab, its language is Arabic. We want to see this formally recognized. It's it's interesting to pause there and and, and kind of recognize that it was kind of secular at this point, this sort of Palestinian identity. At least there were some indications of that. And in the 1920s, Arab attacks on settlements picked up. Jerusalem in 1920 and Haifa in 1921 were sites of these attacks, but 1929 was really the most significant year. Uh, a year before 1928, there was a dispute over control and access to the Wailing Wall in Jerusalem. And just as backgrounds, um, for people who aren't familiar with this history, this is a site where Jews believed it was the last remaining part of the ancient Jewish temple of King Solomon. Uh, the wall forms the western limit of what uh, Muslims call Haram al-Sharif and Jews call the Temple Mount, the uh, gold-top dome of the rock. You've probably seen it. And the Al-Aqsa Mosque were built on the rock from which Muslims believe the Prophet Muhammad ascended to heaven. So, you know, dual disputes over the significance of this site. So, you know, back to 1928-29, during this dispute, several Jews in Jerusalem were killed and violence spilled over into surrounding areas with attacks on Jewish kibbutzim, uh, which are, you know, if if you're not not familiar with it, they're kind of socialist collectives in the area. Um, Muslims in Hebron attacked the Jewish quarter, killing 64 Uh, British troops responded, killing Arabs, and all in all, 113 Jews and 116 Arabs were killed in Jerusalem, Hebron, and other places. Now, the aftermath of this series of uh, attacks reinforced Zionism. There were a lot of Jews who weren't Zionists at this point, but gravitated in that direction. Uh, They looked to the Zionist leadership now for protection, and they advocated for more separation. Um, The British also responded to this unrest with what was called the Passfield White Paper, which proposed restrictions on immigration and land sales to Jews. Uh, And members of the conservative British party beat back the Passfield White Paper and reaffirmed the country's commitment to a Jewish national home. For Arabs, this was another betrayal. Now, at this period of time, immigration begins to soar, Jewish immigration, uh, and especially after 1933 when Hitler comes to power. Um, the number of annual immigrants to Palestine increased from 10,000 in 1932 to 62,000 in 1935. And just to help you track this, 1919, 65,000 Jews, 700,000 Arabs. 1929, 160,000 Jews, 1 million Arabs. So the Arab population is also growing. 1939, 430,000 Jews, 1.2 million Arabs. So you see the Jewish population more than doubling, Arab population showing more a linear growth. At this point, anti-British and anti-Zionist agitation becomes more militant. And a key figure uh, emerges, this guy named Izzadin al-Qassam. He led a 1935 guerrilla war, but was quickly hunted down and killed by the British. He became a hero to the Palestinian cause. Uh, And somebody, even till this day, there's a lot of iconography and and mythology around him. Uh, Thousands attended his funeral in a demonstration of national unity. In 1937, a commission of inquiry from the British government interviewed over 100 people in Palestine, British, Jewish, and Arab. Uh, And the Zionists, uh, according to this uh, report, demanded unlimited immigration and land sales. Arab leaders called for an Arab state of Palestine and expulsion of all Jews immigrated since World War I. Um, The report concluded that cooperation between the Jews and Arabs was impossible. Quote, there is no common ground between them. Their national aspirations are incompatible. End quote. The report also found that the League of Nations mandate was unworkable. They recommended uh, portioning Palestine into two states, one Jewish, one Arab. The Jewish state would include about 20% of Palestine. Uh, The plan accepted the concept of population transfer between the territories. 200,000 Arabs would be transferred out of Jewish areas 
and 1,250 Jews would be transferred the other way. The Jewish agency agreed to the plan, though there were certain members of uh, the Jewish leadership who wanted more, including Ben-Gurion, um, but they kind of got behind it because they, they felt like this is the best they can get at that point. Arabs opposed the plan immediately. 1936 to 1939, um, this was a period of Arab revolt in the countryside, uh, inspired by Al-Qassam. Uh, they carried out attacks on British forces and Jewish settlements. The British ruthlessly cracked down with mass arrests, assassinations, and deportations. And by 1939, Jews made up 30% of Palestine. And in 1939, the, the British issued a white paper uh, declaring that they wanted an independent Palestine within 10 years. Uh, this would be neither a Jewish nor Arab state, but one in which Arabs and Jews shared the governing. So, you know, kind of a, a shared state. The white paper also said Britain would restrict Jewish immigration. And uh, this white paper uh, became a source of alarm within Jewish communities. And as fighting broke out with the Nazis, Ben-Gurion uh, said the Jews would join fighting with Britain against the Nazis, but, quote, the Jews would fight with the British as though there was no white paper and would fight against the white paper as if there was no war. Jews experienced fighting in the British army in the war, uh, and this would prove very important for their military readiness and training in the years ahead. They got valuable experience in that war. When the war ended in 1945, the British announced there would be no change in their policy in Palestine, no increase in immigration, and no separate Jewish state. Uh, Ben-Gurion and other Zionists realized the U.S. was the big emerging power, uh, who they needed on their side. There were 4.5 million Jews in the U.S. at that point, 2 million in New York City, my hometown alone. April 1946, Harry Truman called on the British government to allow immediate entry of 100,000 Jewish uh, refugees. Six months later, he came out in support of the partition of Palestine. The British were kind of slow to bend to the American pressure. Uh, they stopped boatloads of Jewish immigrants from landing in Palestine. Uh, in July 1946, uh, you start to see the emergence of the Irgun, which was a Zionist paramilitary organization. And they had uh, there were there were certain other groups that were associated uh, and similar. They carried out an attack on the King David Hotel in Jerusalem, which housed the British military headquarters in the region. They killed 91 with a bomb. Uh, the attack weakened the morale of the British, who were exhausted and depleted following World War II. Uh, there was a key moment uh, also where there was this ship called the Exodus, which had 4,500 refugees from Europe who were prevented from landing. Um, there was widespread publicity that led to sympathy for the Jewish refugees worldwide that put further pressure on the British. So you had both pressure from this uh, attack on the King David Hotel, and then you also had 4,500 refugees sent away, and this looked terrible at the time of the Holocaust. And so the British kind of bent at this point. They were just exhausted from World War II. They didn't really have the will to to stick around the region. Uh, in 1947, they sought the advice of the newly formed United Nations. Um, the UN Special Committee on Palestine was set up to investigate and make recommendations on how to solve the issue. The UN General Assembly accepted their report, 33 to 13. Um, the main recommendation was to split up Palestine into a Jewish state and an Arab state. Jews were given 55% of the land, but had a third of the population. Uh, and the rationale behind giving them more land was to give them more land to accommodate refugees from Europe. You have to remember at this period of time, like the Holocaust had just happened. And I think there was a lot of international guilt over that. In what was to be the Jewish state, there were, there were 530,000 Jews and 400,000 Arabs. So, you know, it's kind of a 60-40 situation at that point. Um, the suggested partition presented a crisscross arrangement and kissing points at intersections where the, the sides could transfer to other 
sides and, and, and different, you know, people in different regions can interact and travel between the areas. Uh, Jewish agency accepted the plan and the AHC, which are the, the representatives of the Palestinian Arabs, rejected it for obvious reasons, like given, I think, they felt like if they had the numerical majority, they deserved more more of the land. Um, some prominent Jewish leaders didn't like the plan because Jews didn't get Jerusalem, and this included uh, two future prime ministers, uh, Ben Gurion and Menachem Begin. Uh, a few days after the UN vote for partition, the AHC voted for a three-day strike that led to violence against Jewish civilians. In December 1947, the British announced they would leave Palestine five months later in May 1948. This led to a cycle of attack, retaliation, and revenge. Uh, the Jewish forces were better trained, prepared, and organized. British Member of Parliament, uh, Richard Crossman, who made a visit to the region at the time, uh, said the Jewish agency was, quote, the most efficient, dynamic, and toughest organization I've ever seen, end quote. Um, the Arabs, on the other hand, had a divided leadership and weak institutions. And in 1948, volunteers from Syria and Iraq began to cross into Palestine to help. And they were sponsored by the recently formed Arab League and were formed into the Arab Liberation Army. By 1948, Jewish forces began forced expulsion of Arabs from villages inside what was to become the Jewish state. Um, nearly all villages from Tel Aviv to Haifa were cleared of Arab populations. Some attacks by Jews were in retaliation for Arab attacks, and some were offensive. I'm, I'm going to come back to that point. In April 1948, uh, there was a key uh, historical uh, atrocity. It was called the Dariusine Massacre. Ergun fighters, uh, led by Menachem Begin, attacked uh, a village and killed over 100 inhabitants, 75 of whom were women, elderly, and children. Uh, Begin disputed that it was a massacre, as did some others uh, who were part of that group. But um, he was clear about its effects, though, later writing that, quote, Arabs began to flee in terror, even before they, before they clashed with Jewish forces. The legend was worth a half dozen battalions to the forces of Israel, end quote, meaning he, he didn't acknowledge his role in the massacre or that it was a massacre, but said that the psychological effect of it led Arabs to flee. Uh, Arabs took revenge a few days later, ambushing a convoy on its way to a hospital in Jerusalem, killing 78, including doctors and nurses. By the time the British left on May 14, 1948, over 300,000 Arabs had fled what became the independent state of Israel. There's a big debate ever since over whether they were expelled, they chose to leave, or a combination of the two. There are two different interpretations. There are many interpretations, to be clear, of what happened, but I'll break them down into two. There's the Zionist interpretation, which is that the Jewish military actions after 1947 were mostly defensive to protect Jewish settlements and roads linking them. Uh, and in the coastal Arab towns like Haifa and Jaffa, thousands of Arabs followed the example of their leaders and fled because of the examples of their leaders and um, not because they were pushed out. That's the Zionist interpretation. The, what's called the revisionist interpretation suggests that Haganah, uh, another sort of paramilitary group, and the Jewish agencies condoned or turned a blind eye, or Haganah, which is the labor group, to be clear, sorry. And the Jewish agency condoned and turned a blind, blind eye to the operations of Ergun and the Stern Gang, which is another paramilitary group. Uh, there's a group of new historians, they're called, uh, Benny Morris, uh, based in Israel, being one of them, who wrote this book called Righteous Victims, which is a dense read, a very interesting read, but a dense and controversial read, um, he made use of Israeli documents that were declassified in the 1970s. Uh, and, you know, there's this Haganah document called Plan D, which outlined some intentions of clearing uh, Arab villages. There's a dispute of how specific that document was. Even Elon Pape, or Pap, I don't know how to say his name, uh, 
who's kind of critical of Israel, admits that it was a largely vague document. It wasn't a blueprint. And he argues that it did help shape the atmosphere, though. Most historians I've read, uh, this is not the consensus among everybody, most historians I've read agree that there wasn't necessarily a specific detailed plan or an explicit order for the systemic expulsion of Palestinians, but that some individual local commanders may have interpreted it that way. You should read uh, Benny Morris on this because he provides the primary source documentation and you could read it for yourself. Um, my read on this is that uh, there probably wasn't a top-down order, uh, but there was a lot happening on the ground to push the Palestinians out, uh, without a doubt. Like, this wasn't just uh, the, the Palestinian leaders asking their people to leave. Um, the War of 1948-49 uh, followed, uh, and you know this was the day after Ben-Gurion proclaimed the birth of Israel. Uh, armed forces from Syria, Iraq, Transjordan, and Egypt entered Palestine. Uh, the state of Israel was born in war, essentially. Uh, and there were three phases. Phase one, um, Israel was largely uh, defensive, uh, basically pushing back the Syrians, the Iraqis, the, the Jordanians, and Egyptians. Um, in phase two, the goal was for Israel to widen the corridor to Jerusalem and take Arab land allocated in the process. Uh, the Stern Gang, uh, which was an Israeli gang, assassinated Count Bernadotte, the uh, special UN mediator, um, and Israel dissolved the Stern Gang and Ergun uh, in response to that uh, and incorporated some of those elements within the IDF. Uh, phase three involved the um, in, uh, Israel concentrated on defeating the Egyptians in the south, and um, they pursued the Egyptians over the border. But under U.S. pressure, they withdrew from Egyptian territory. Now, uh, by the end of the war, you know Israel won handily, and even though they were obviously smaller in number. Uh, but by the end of the war, Israel controlled 78% of what had been the British Mandate of Palestine versus 55% allocated from the UN. 400,000 Palestinian Arabs fled between 1948 and 49. Most ended up in Gaza, or what is now called the West Bank. The flight in the 1947 to 1949 period is known in Arabic as Nakba, uh, catastrophe or disaster. Uh, for Israelis, it was known as a war of national liberation. Um, they fended off a more powerful and numerous foe and what they believe were sympathizers within their own borders. The psychological effects of that war were massive for both sides. Uh, on the Arab side, it was a humiliation for American uh, Zionists. He wrote, quote, the victory offered such a glorious contrast to the centuries of persecution and humiliation, of adaptation and compromise, that it seemed to indicate the only direction that could possibly be taken from then on, to tolerate no attack and shape history, end quote. So in short, um, you know, a historically persecuted group now puffed their chest out. Uh, they were militarily successful. They had their own country. They won a, an important war for their existence. On the Arab side, they'd lost an important holy uh, land and a site where one of their group, the Palestinians, had, had lost their country uh, or their opportunity for a country. Uh, and so this is obviously the sort of the fork in the road that shapes everything coming after it. In the 1948 armistice agreements, the Israelis and Egyptians uh, agreed to confirm pre-war borders. Gaza would go under Egyptian military rule. Uh, Jordan and Israel signed an armistice agreement where Jordan would control the West Bank and they partitioned the West Bank. Uh, and then Israel and Syria signed a deal where Syria would leave land allocated to Israel 
And this would kind of set up you know, ongoing disputes later on, which we'll get to. Uh, the armistice agreements were supposed to lead to permanent peace treaties, but none would come between Israel and the Arab countries for another 30 years. The sticking points were borders and refugees. The Arab countries wanted the right of return or compensation for homes for Palestinians who were expelled or who left. Israel claimed Arabs created the refugee problem by invading Israel and starting the war. Now, why did Israel win this war? One is that Arab leaders were divided, they were poorly coordinated, and were largely self-interested. I mean, mostly the Arab leaders coming into the territory. And this is going to be a constant, constant refrain in these wars, is that a lot of these countries around Israel supporting the Palestinians um, could not get their act together. And a good example of this is that in the third phase of fighting of the war, none of Egypt's allies answered its appeal for help against Israeli forces. Egypt and Syria were generally suspicious of Jordan's aims. This is going to also be a constant refrain. King Abdullah was all over the place during this period of time, sometimes liaising with the Israelis, sometimes uh, threatening their existence. Israel's priorities were now, after the war, to build the infrastructure of a new country and to facilitate rapid immigration and fend off future attacks. Now, this is sort of the end of the phase one, right? I remember I was telling you up to independence is phase one. And, you know, the key questions are who is first, right? Like Judaism, um, you know, given its longer history, there's like a long historical argument, but then there's the question of the more proximate history in the 1800s and the Ottomans. Uh, different people pick different areas as their starting point. The other major question here is who was the aggressor, right? In, you know, the initial war, for Israel's existence. I think if you talk to Israelis, they'll say, you know, from the moment we declared independence, people are trying to invade us. Uh, and then there was the question of the diaspora, right? Why did Palestinians leave? Uh, there's, there's no sensible history there to say that by today's standards, what happened in expelling the Palestinians is right. And I think a lot of the question becomes what, as time goes on, do you do about that fact? Um, the Palestinian diaspora from 1947 to 1949, 700,000 were displaced. So you take that original diaspora pre-war, uh, pre the sort of um, Israeli-Arab conflict one, and then you take all the rest. You had 700,000 displaced just between 1947 and 49. Most of them went to the West Bank and Gaza, the rest to Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. Um, Palestinians in the West Bank offered Jordanian uh, were offered Jordanian citizenship. Jordanians were eager to assimilate them and didn't want them to assert their distinct Palestinian identity, um, Palestinians would eventually make up half of Jordan's population. Refugees in Gaza went under Egyptian military rule, and these were very poor conditions, and this would shape the makeup of Gaza and the West Bank to come, like the sort of more favorable conditions, though you know nobody would say ideal in the West Bank versus um, military rule and harsh conditions in Egypt. Uh, in Lebanon, refugees were under constrained conditions as well, largely restricted to camps. Those who moved to Syria were denied passports and the right to vote. And uh, in a lot of the leaders of uh, the Palestinian uh, movement within Palestine and abroad were blamed for the loss, and this led to a leader vacuum in this period of time. Uh, there was, though, the establishment of the UN Relief and Works Agency, UNRWA, uh, which provided food, shelter, and clothing. 155,000 non-Jews lived within Israel at the time, though, and uh, Israel officially opposed the return of every other refugee. Yuri uh, Averni, who is an Israeli who fought 
1948 and later became a peace activist, said the decision, quote, not to allow the 750,000 Arab refugees to return to their homes uh, is what did most to determine the subsequent history of the conflict, end quotes. Uh, Arabs who remained in Israel became Israeli citizens, and this was about 15% of the population. Arab villages would continue, though, to be subject to displacement. From 1942 to 1952, 40 more Palestinian villages were depopulated, uh, to use an Orwellian term. Um, 1949 to 1960 are generally considered the lost years of Palestinian nationalism, a uh, kind of leaderless period by some, but the refugee camps did become the genesis of a renewed Palestinian nationalism and leadership. My sense in looking at this history is that there's a lot of dispute over what is it, you know, when did the Palestinian identity come about and how distinct is it, et cetera. I'm, I'm not really going to go into those arguments, but I will say this. These periods of time when Palestinians were pushed into camps strengthened the Palestinian identity and I think created a, a sense of bunker mentality. And this shared experience of exile shaped that identity a ton. And each location, whether it's the West Bank, Gaza, Lebanon, Syria, kind of fostered its own sense of identity. Uh, and there's different flavors of the Palestinian identity in each of those areas. Um, this is a period also that gave birth to Fatah, which is uh, at the, that point, the most significant of the Palestinian organizations. Um, the Arabic initials uh, for Fatah say the, the movement for the liberation of Palestine, and, and that spells Fatah or victory when it's read in reverse, originated in 1950s. This was among Palestinian students in Cairo. Their key leader was Yasser Arafat, and his focus was on liberating Palestine through armed struggle. Beginning in 1954, they carried out, uh, began to carry out attacks on Israel from Gaza. Uh, and in 1964, uh, when Arab nations met in Cairo, President Nasser, who's this kind of really important figure, the president of Egypt at the time, uh, indicated that he had no intention to immediately liberate Palestine. And at the meeting, Arab leaders formed the Palestinian Liberation Organization under, under the leadership of a Nasser ally. And in January 1st, 1965, Fatah called for an armed struggle against Israel. They received enthusiastic support in the camps. They weren't initially successful, but they were building popular support. Politics in Israel, on the other hand, in, in the early days was dominated by, and I'm probably going to butcher this pronunciation, but Mapai, uh, which became the Israeli Labor Party. Their first leader was Ben-Gurion. Um, no party ever secured a majority on its own, on its parliamentary system, and it always had been coalitions. In 1956, there was the Suez War. I'm not going to go into that because we have only so much time. Um, but in 1967, there was the Six-Day War. And the lead-up to this period is important. Nasser, you know, the Egyptian president, was goaded by Arab allies to take increasingly anti-Israeli stances. In January 1964, he convened a meeting of Arab leaders in Cairo. He declared uh, its collective goal of these Arab leaders was, quote, the final liquidation of Israel. Nasser had used nerve gas in Yemen in 1963, and so he was a uh, scary figure, I think, to a lot of Israelis. Uh, the historian Avi Shalom wrote, quote, what he did, Nasser, was to embark on an exercise in brinkmanship that was to carry him over the brink. Um, Nasser closed the Straits of Tehran, um, which cut off Israel uh, shipping routes. Uh, he called on Israel to give up land they acquired in 1948 uh, and 1949. He signed a defense treaty with King Hussein of Jordan. Israel interpreted all of this and what uh, Nasser was saying as a precursor to war in Israel, on the dawn of the morning of June 5th, 1967, 
they attacked preemptively. They carried out airstrikes and wiped out nearly all of the Egyptian, Syrian, and Jordanian air force. They gained control of Egypt's Sinai and Syrian Golan Heights within six days. They seized Gaza and the West Bank. And by the end of the war, Israel controlled all of what had been mandatory Palestine. After the war, at a conference of the Arab League, Arab leaders declared what is famously called the three no's. No peace with Israel, no recognition of Israel, no neg- negotiation with Israel. Three no's. In November 1967, the UN Security Council passed Resolution 242, which called for a permanent peace plan based on, quote, withdrawal of Israeli armed forces from territories occupied in the recent conflict, respect for the right of every state in the area to, quote, live in peace within secure and recognized boundaries, free of threats or acts of force, end quote. So uh, Israel would with, withdraw from the territory it conquered, uh, but the states around them uh, would recognize their borders and commit to not act with threats or violence. Egypt and Jordan supported the resolution. Syria did not. Israel wound up accepting it too in 1968. Nasser, after the war, was humiliated. He offered to resign. Um, after the war, Israel uh, destroyed um, some West Bank villages close to Jerusalem, citing security. Uh, and you know this was a period of, of you know pretty rapid settlement growth in certain areas, which I'll come back to as well. Um, figures differ on the amount of, of Palestinians who were displaced during this war, the 1967 war. Israel says 150,000. Jordan says 250,000. Independent agencies put this around 200,000. Uh, importantly, note here, many of these refugees became refugees for a second time. The Fatah had taken no part in that fighting and sought to rally morale after the war. This is actually important for them because so much of the public blamed their traditional leaders, you know, both within Palestine and in the countries outside of it, like Jordan, Egypt, et cetera. Uh, but Fatah, because it wasn't involved in the fighting, actually emerged pretty strong. And Arafat moved to the West Bank uh, to plan activities uh, and by legend uh, lived in caves and had to flee at one point dressed as a woman. In September 19th, 1967, Fatah planted a bomb at the Old Fast Hotel in West Jerusalem uh, and hailed it as the start of an armed insurrection. And during this time within Israel, there was a huge debate over what to do with this captured territory. Uh, Brigadier General Rehavam Sivi, uh, definitely got that wrong, warned that, quote, protracted military rule will enhance the hatred and deepen the rift between the inhabitants of the West Bank and Israel because of the objective steps it will be essential to adopt in order to ensure order and security, end quote. Moshe Dayan proposed autonomy for the West Bank with Israel in charge of security. Um, Dayan was the defense minister. Israel did not, though, act very fast to create any durable solution. Um, Shlomo Ben-Ami, who's an academic historian and a, he became a future labor uh, minister, wrote, quote, Israel's sin in the aftermath of the war lay in her total misunderstanding of the conditions that were created by her victory. She developed no reasonable strategy as to the best way to turn her military supremacy into a political tool and use her exploits on the battlefield in order to change the nature of her relations with the Arab world, end quote. Ian Black, who wrote a really, really good book on the history of the conflict, uh, called this period of time the other side of euphoria, meaning um, there was so much euphoria within Israel for their victory, uh, but some called this a cursed blessing. 
Um, the Baghdad-born Israeli writer Nassam Rejwan lamented, quote, the sheer size of the victory, the humiliation it brought on the Arab world, and the certain knowledge that the Arabs would never ever contemplate peace and reconciliation with Israel from a position of such crippling weakness. Uh, in the aftermath of the war, an anonymous soldier was interviewed, Israeli soldier was interviewed and said, quote, I think the next round, the Arabs' hatred towards us will be much more serious and profound. Another soldier said, quote, not only did this war not solve the status uh, state's problems, but it complicated them in a way that'll be very hard to solve, end quote. Uh, and a lot of Israelis will say of this period of time, they were kind of damned if they do, damned if they don't. Um, they believed that uh, they were under existential threat from Nasser, who promised to liquidate them and was taking steps to do so, and they had to fight. Um, but then once they uh, gained the territory that they gained, they didn't know what to do with it. That's their take. Uh, I think the Palestinian take was, well, you should give the land back. The Israelis will say that they wanted to create a barrier for security. You know, the, these are the arguments that have played out in the decades since, but post-1967, Israel had to grapple now as an occupying force, and the Palestinians suffered for sure. The pattern emerges from this period of time. Gaza is more dramatic. You know, for every fighting that's happening anywhere, it's more intense in Gaza, uh, although the conditions in West Bank are not good either. In July 1968, the PLO changed its covenant to say that the only Jews who would be considered Palestinians would be those who arrived before 1917, uh, which is a revision from the earlier version, which used the date of 1947. In December 1968, Time Magazine chose a Fedayeen leader, Arafat, for its cover. He takes over the PLO. The PLO and, and Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, the PFLP, begin planning more international activities from Lebanon and elsewhere. In May 1970, there's a cross-border attack on a school bus that killed 12 Israeli school children. In 1968, there was the hijacking of the LL flight to Algiers. 1969, there was the hijacking of the TWA flight from LA to Tel Aviv. In 1971, there are foreign operations that accounted for 30% of PLO activities and rose to 30% in 1973. Uh, and so tons of international uh, activity, 30% of the activity of PLO at this period of time. Um, the most major and, and horrific of these was the Munich Games massacre by the uh, Black September group. 11 Israeli hostages were killed. Arafat and the PLO disclaimed knowledge of it, uh, but Israelis in the CIA claim that uh, Fatah funds were used, uh, as well as uh, facilities and personnel. Arafat uh, said, quote, violent political action in the midst of a popular movement cannot be termed terrorism, end quote. Uh, Israel retaliated, often with attacks on Syria and Lebanon. Um, the writer Ian Black wrote that international images of Palestinians took a hit during this period of time um, because they were starting to become synonymous with terrorism. In 1969, uh, Golda Meir becomes uh, prime minister of Israel. She is a uh, female prime minister, their first female prime minister. Um, she said at the time, quote, there is no such thing as Palestinians. It was not as though there was a Palestinian people in Palestine considering itself as a Palestinian people. And we came and threw them out and took their country. They did not exist, end quote. So that's her mindset. In October, Meir's labor-led coalition returned to power with the largest number of seats ever won in an Israeli election. Um, she insisted no return to pre-1967 borders. Um, in August 1968, the playwright uh, Hanuk Levin produced a satirical show. It was called You and I in the Next War. This gives you a sense of the mentality at the time. And uh, in the play, there's a quote, whenever we walk, we are three, you and I, and the next war. 
And that next war came pretty fast. It came a few years later in 1973. And um, Yom Kippur is the holiest day of the year. On that day uh, in, in, in Israel and in, among the Jewish faith, and in, on that day, Egyptian and Syrian forces attacked Israeli troops in Sinai and the Golan Heights in a secretly coordinated attack and invaded. Uh, they forced Israelis to retreat and destroyed several hundred Israeli tanks. Within days, Israelis recovered and launched a counterattack. They were helped by an airlift of arms from the U.S., and they drove the, the Arab armies back. By the time the U.N. arranged a ceasefire, Israelis had regained Sinai and the Golan Heights and even more territory. They're actually 50 miles from Cairo and 25 miles from Damascus. The entire Egyptian Third Army was encircled by the IDF. Six years later, in 1979, Israel signed a peace treaty with Egypt and withdrew from Sinai, and Egypt became the first Arab state to officially recognize Israel. Some things to note about that war, the Yom Kippur War. One was that the Palestinian Liberation Army units were deployed in a very limited way on both fronts, so they weren't as involved in that war either. They were somewhat involved. Uh, Jordan also did not join. They sent a token force to Syria, but they informed U.S. and Israel that they were doing it, um, and they prevented the PLO from attacking from their own territory. So, you know, Jordan is kind of trying to do enough to show um, the Arab world that they're an ally while also trying to maintain positive relations with the U.S. and Israel. From then forward, though, after the Yom Kippur War, Arab states recognized the PLO as a sole legitimate representative of the Palestinian people. A poll conducted after the war found deep support for the PLO in the West Bank and Gaza. And in 1974, uh, Arafat appeared at the UN offering Israel the choice between the gun and the olive branch. It was actually at that point the most security ever for a UN speech. Uh, 1974 also marked some major terrorist attacks. One in April that killed 18 Israelis, including nine children. One in May at the Lebanese border, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine took hostages in a school. 21 teenagers died. The uh, psychological effects of all of this, the Egyptian and Syrian army performance, Arafat's UN speech, the attacks, uh, this all kind of rose the morale and self-esteem of Palestinians. Um, this was a period of time in which they were kind of felt more ascendant. Um, they they weren't as humiliated. But uh, as the writer Sari Anusahe wrote, this, they were still kind of stuck in a purgatorial reality. They had neither had independence nor were they integrated into the Israeli state. Um, as Sari wrote, they were neither free from Israel nor equals within it. This is the period of the occupation. The Israeli military was responsible uh, for the occupation. The first defense minister was Moshe Dayan, and he had a policy of normalization. Uh, they, were, they allowed the use of Jordanian currency, the dinar. Uh, it was continued uh, to be used alongside the shekel. Uh, but permits were required to open a business, to practice law, medicine, drive a car, build a house, install a water pump, live outside the area you registered. Uh, Israeli producers largely had access to the Palestinian market, but not the other way around. And but by the mid-1980s, Palestinians provided 50% of labor in agriculture and construction in Israel. Settlement construction also became a huge focus of debate, both within and outside of Israel. Uh, the Israeli rationale was often security, that they were building buffer zones to shield from attack from Jordan, uh, although that rationale often didn't always line up with what they were doing. Yitzhak Rabin, uh, who is a war hero, hero, became prime minister in 1974. Uh, he pushed peace. Uh, he wanted a Jordanian peace uh, with a Jordanian-Palestinian state in the West Bank. Uh, he put proposals forward for an Israeli withdrawal from Jericho and an establishment of a, a Jordanian administrative state there. 
This this was the so-called Jordanian option. He faced resistance, though, Perez, uh, Rabin did. Um, he faced it even from his own defense minister, Shimon Perez, who favored more aggressive settlement building, uh, which Rabin opposed because it would undermine his strategy for peace. The Likud took power in 1977 under the leadership of Menachem Begin, ending 30 years of labor-led government. Uh, and this began increased pace of settlement construction, a very rapid pace of settlement construction. This was the so-called Sharon Plan uh, under the uh, head of Ministerial Settlement Committee, uh, which is the internal uh, group inside Israel responsible for settlement construction. This Ariel Sharon was the head of that group, um, eventually became prime minister. But he pushed settlement construction, and under Likud government, settlement construction increased. Taking a step back, there there was a huge increase uh, in terrorism during this period of time. By 1967, the you know Jordan you know is grappling with their area becoming a base for terrorism. Half the population of Jordan was Palestinian. Fatah and other groups concentrated their forces in Jordan and recruited from refugee camps. Um, during the first three months of 1968, Fatah carried out 78 attacks on Israeli targets. Uh, George Habash, who was the leader of the PFLP, said, quote, um, when we hijack a plane, it has more effect than if we killed 100 Israelis in battle. The rest of the world is uh, talking about us now. In response to these attacks uh, and the hijackings, King Hussein of Jordan ordered his army to take control of PLO bases. They killed and expelled the PLO, most of whom had to move to Syria and Lebanon. In revenge... Uh, the Jordanian prime minister, uh, not the king, was murdered while in Egypt. Uh, Black September took credit for that. That was two years before their Munich attack. Um, the PLO also had a presence in Lebanon. By 1970, about a quarter of a million Palestinians were living in Lebanon. Um, the PLO set up bases there after being expelled from Jordan, uh, and they came to dominate southern Lebanon. PLO established courts imposed taxes. They had military training there. They established the Red Crescent Society uh, with Arafat's brother as chairman, which built hospitals. They had radio networks and newspapers, and they attacked launches on Israel from Lebanon. And in 1975, Lebanon's largely Christian military forces tried to regain control of the South. Palestinians resisted, joined by some Lebanese Muslims. A civil war ensued, Muslim versus Christian largely. In Lebanon, it's never really been the same. Uh, in 1978, the PLO suicide uh, squad attacked a bus near Tel Aviv, killing 37 passengers. Israel invaded Lebanon in response, seizing control of the South. Uh, they wound up withdrawing under pressure from the UN, who set up a peacekeeping mission there. And then in 1982, a group of Palestinians attempted to murder the Israeli ambassador in London. The Israeli response did major damage to the PLO, uh, but they also killed many civilians and made hundreds of thousands homeless. Um, the Israelis chased the PLO fighters advancing north and surrounding Beirut. They launched air raids on the city, uh, and over 20,000 were killed in what was called the Battle of Beirut. The U.S. intervened. Uh, agreement. They got agreement from the uh, Israelis to stop shelling the city in return for PLO fighters evacuating. In September of that year, the Christian president of Lebanon was killed. His supporters took revenge, invading a refugee camp and killing men, women, and children. Um, one to 2,000 were killed, depending on which estimates you believe. Uh, peace activists in Israel protested their armed forces because they felt that their armed forces didn't do enough to stop the massacre. Um, the Israeli government uh, did an inquiry and, and later found that Ariel Sharon was indirectly responsible for the massacre. Uh, because he was defense minister at the time, and, and Sharon was forced to resign in disgrace. Uh, the Israelis uh, withdrew from Beirut, but remained in the south of Lebanon. 
Um, they made some enemies in the process and what would become known as Hezbollah, who was kind of born during this period of time. In 1985, Israel withdrew from Lebanon, uh, and this was the longest war they ever fought. Many regard it as their first defeat. Now, whew, long breath. We're now kind of at the end now of the conventional wars. We're, we're well past there, right? We're, we're well into the third phase of what I talked about, which is the unconventional warfare, the terrorism, the occupation, right? Like this is the period we're in now. And uh, there was something called the First Intifada, the uprising, 1987 to 1993. Um, this all started in December 8th, 1987, when an Israeli army vehicle uh, in a refugee camp in Gaza, crashed into two cars, killing four Palestinians. Rumors spread that it was an act of revenge for the killing of an Israeli settler two days before. The funerals for the Palestinians became huge dem demonstrations that spread across Gaza and the West Bank. Stone throwing and Molotov cocktails from Palestinians were kind of met with live ammunition and tear gas from Israeli forces at various uh, points during this intifada, notably the killing of a 17-year-old Palestinian, Faris Oday, was photographed. Uh, throwing a stone at an Israeli tank, and this kind of became an image of the struggle. In 1989, Hamas kidnapped and killed two Israeli soldiers, uh, which is an event that deeply shocked the Israeli public and led to calls for a tough response. The Israeli government employed various strategies like mass arrests and curfews to squash the revolt. In one of their more controversial policies, they had the broken bones policy in which soldiers were in, um, instructed to break the limbs of Palestinian stone throwers. Um, this is disputed by Israelis. Economic and social boycotts were another feature. The Palestinians refused to buy Israeli products and even organized their own parallel education system when their schools were closed by Israeli authorities. The uh, first intifada saw the rise of political graffiti, leaflets, underground newspapers. Palestinians disseminated key messages and instructions, uh, often through a clandestine body known as the Unified National Leadership of the Uprising. In 1988, the PLO issued a Declaration of Independence uh, proclaiming, quote, the establishment of the state of Palestine. Arafat recognized the right of Israel to exist, and the U.S. opened up discussions with PLO, which I'll get to. Um, now, during this period, uh, the peace movement within Israel grew. Organizations like Peace Now um, and groups of uh, former uh, Israeli military officials uh, started to call out the occupation and, you know, posit alternatives now, in 1990, sort of halfway through the Intifada, key moment came in the Gulf War with uh, between the U.S. and certain Gulf allies in Iraq under Saddam Hussein. Saddam was very anti-Israel. He warned he would burn half of Israel, which was a veiled reference to the chemical weapons he used against Iran and the Kurds. And fatefully, Arafat was very close with Saddam Hussein because Saddam Hussein supported the Intifada. Uh, within weeks of the uh, Iraqi invasion of Kuwait, um, demonstrations were held in Jordan and West Bank in support of Saddam. One poll found 84% of West Bankers considered Saddam a hero, 58% supported his invasion of Kuwait. And during Operation Desert Storm, uh, Iraq launched Scud missiles at Tel Aviv and Haifa, and Israel did not retaliate. Uh, the Gulf War eclipsed the Intifada in many ways. At that point, like, at a certain point, the Intifada was actually a success in a way for the Palestinians in terms of their goal of garnering international sympathy. But the Gulf War reversed a lot of this. Arafat's embrace of Saddam Hussein uh, in, in, in many ways really cost them. Post-war, uh, after the U.S. and their coalition won, uh, and Kuwait and Saudi Arabia 
expelled 300,000 Palestinians who were living in their area and basically cut off um, the PLO. Uh, and there were also images of Palestinians cheering on the bombings of Israel that also didn't help them uh, in their international standing and sympathy. So uh, this sort of, the sympathy that they that they garnered during the Intifada was reversed. Uh, during the Bush administration, Bush won, um, there was a Madrid peace conference, but this uh, overlapped with the government of Shamir in Israel, who was a hard right figure. And um, there was a lot of activity, but um, not a lot happened. But in January, 1992, Yitzhak Rabin came back into power. Um, some say this was the most left-wing government that, that had happened to that point in Israel. Rabin froze contracts for housing and Jewish settlements, although he allowed for what was called natural growth uh, and projects that were already underway. Arafat at the time was in exile in Tunis, and he was watching with growing alarm at the rise of Hamas, uh, a much more radical group um, out of Gaza, who stepped up actions in the autumn of 1992, ahead of the fifth anniversary of the Intifada. Um, they killed five Israeli soldiers in ambushes over a two-week span. Um, Rabin, at home, was accused of being soft on terrorists, and Arafat was growing out of touch with the realities on the ground in the occupied territories. And a back channel arose between those two governments in January 1993 in Norway. Israeli academics and Palestinian officials started meeting in secret, and they adopted a statement of principles that included the separation of interim and permanent status issues. The interim issues were uh, Israeli withdrawal and Palestinian self-government, meaning things that would happen like pretty much immediately. Then uh, the permanent status issues, refugee settlements, borders, sovereignty, security arrangements, they were all uh, things that would be left for the uh, a multi-year negotiation. At this period of time, the PLO was very weak. They were effectively bankrupt as a result of Arafat's Saddam embrace. Um, and violence escalated as all these negotiations were going on. In March 1993, 15 Israeli civilians and soldiers were killed by Palestinians uh, mostly in stabbing attacks. This uh, triggered a closing of the Green Line, so the um, the area uh, separating different parts of the West Bank from each other and from Israel. Israel began sending official representatives to the Norway talks, and they introduced this concept of mutual recognition, um, which Arafat liked. Basically, both sides would recognize each other. Uh, Shimon Peres, uh, who is the sort of the uh, equivalent of Secretary of State, the State Minister. Uh, and Mahmoud Abbas, who was kind of Arafat's chief deputy, met in Norway, which caused a sensation. Um, there was a denunciation by uh, members of the settler councilor in Israel uh, and by Hamas in the territories. In August 1993, the, the Declaration of Principles was signed, but it wasn't made public yet. And, but then in September 1993, in the White House lawn, in a very you know, dramatic moment, Bill Clinton, who's then president of the United States, convinces Yitzhak Rabin to shake Arafat's hand as they agree to what is called the Oslo Accords. This is a huge moment. Uh, and uh, the key provisions of these Oslo Accords are, one, they would establish elected councils in West Bank and Gaza of Palestinian representatives. There would be a five-year transition period leading to a permanent settlement um, based on the UN Resolution 242 and 338. Israel would start withdrawal from Gaza and Jericho, and within three years, they would hold negotiations on these sort of final status issues, Jerusalem, refugee settlements, security arrangements, borders. Um, the PLO recognized Israel's right to exist in peace and security, and they renounced terrorism, and Israel recognized the PLO as a representative of the Palestinian people. There has been a lot of criticism of Oslo, but it's important to note at the time there was a lot of hope at this period of time 
both internationally, but also within Israel and the territories. It was a step forward in the eyes of many at a time where there only seemed to be steps backward. The criticisms, though, were that it was vague and that Israel got most of what it wanted right away, whereas the Palestinians were left to wait. Abbas told the PLO Central Council in Tunis, quote, now comes the test. Can we build institutions that can rebuild the scorched land? The mind of the revolution is very different than the mind of the state, end quote. Now, Hamas and Islamic Jihad, two radical groups that were opposed to the existence of Israel, objected forcefully. And in February 1994, Baruch Goldenstein, uh, an American-born settler, killed 29 Muslim worshipers at a mosque in Hebron. Um, and Hamas retaliated, killing eight Israelis and injuring 49 when a, a car bomb exploded at a bus stop. Uh, this was the first suicide bombing by Palestinians against civilians within Israel. Arafat at this point started to waver. On a visit to South Africa, he compared Oslo to an agreement the Prophet Muhammad had signed from a position of weakness, which uh, Muhammad breached when he had his power increased. This signaled to Israelis that Arafat was ready to breach whenever it suited him. Shortly after that, Arafat kind of confirmed what they were worried about. During a meeting in Cairo with Rabin and Mubarak, who is now the head of Egypt, um, Arafat was to sign the Gaza-Jericho self-rule accord, um, sort of a critical step in Oslo, but in front of cameras, he balked at endorsing a map for the Jericho area. Arafat, at this point, is under tremendous, tremendous pressure from more extreme elements within the territories. On July 1st, 1994, he entered Gaza Strip. This is the first time the, the PLO leader set foot in Palestinian soil since 1967. In October 1994, Hamas kidnapped an Israeli soldier and gave the government 24 hours to free 200 Palestinian prisoners. They killed, um, they were killed by uh, captors uh, when the Israelis uh, attempted a failed rescue attempt. Uh, all of this was happening while Rabin and Arafat were set to accept the Nobel Peace Prize, by the way. Uh, a week later, 22 Israelis were killed in the heart of Tel Aviv when a suicide bomber targeted the number five bus. This was the worst terrorist attack since 1978. Um, Arafat condemned the bombings, but the effect was significant within Israel. Outside of the defense ministry, hundreds of protesters held a vigil chanting death to Rabin. Um, Netanyahu, who is at this point rising as a young leader, he had spent time in the United States as a child and, and as a spokesperson for the, the Israeli mission there, became a very significant opposition leader and was gearing up to run against Rabin. He said that Rabin was personally responsible for those deaths of the number five. Um, Shimon Perez, who is, uh, again, Rabin's deputy, said that Hamas wanted Israelis, quote, to lose our heads and stop the peace process. No way on earth, end quote. In October, Israel and Jor Jordan finalized their peace treaty, so it was a little bit of good news during this period. Arafat beefed up security in the face of internal resistance from Hamas. And in January 1995, a double suicide bombing killed 19 soldiers at a bus stop. Islamic Jihad uh, claimed responsibility for this. When Rabin visited the scene of that attack uh, to express sympathy for the victims, his car was attacked by a crowd of Israelis chanting traitor, and protests erupted around the country with images of Rabin in an SS uniform and with the kafia. But Rabin and Perez plowed on. In September 1995, Oslo II was finalized. This is a 300-page document, so it's got a lot in it, and I can't talk about all of it here, but most significantly, it divided the occupied areas into three zones. Area one was uh, Palestinian towns and urban areas uh, that had full Palestinian authority for uh, the rule of law and order. This was 2.8% of the West Bank. So full 
Palestinian Authority control, 2.8% of the West Bank. That's area A. Area B were villages and sparsely populated areas. This is where the Palestinian Authority had kind of quasi-control. This is 22.9% of the, the West Bank territories. And then area C, uh, which is important agricultural areas and water sources, uh, Israel had full responsibility for these areas. This was 74.3% of territory. And so that was Oslo too. Um, when accepting the Nobel Peace Prize, it's worth mentioning, Rabin uh, committed to stop building any new settlements. Uh, Oslo too also said, quote, as it relates to settlements, neither side shall take initiatives or any step that will change the status of the West Bank and Gaza pending the outcomes of the permanent status negotiations, end quote. At this point, Palestinian support for peace was at its highest. 71% uh, supported peace and over 60% of students supported peace. Now, this student, I mentioned students because they were typically where the more hardline groups came from. So even 60% of the young people supported it. Uh, and support for Oslo II itself was 72% in October 1995. Uh, in Israel, Oslo II passed the Knesset by slim margin. The right-wingers were on the rise, but they weren't enough to stop it. Uh, Netanyahu denounced the deal and visited the Hebron settlers. Right, This was the site of that massacre I mentioned before by that American radical, American-born radical. Um, these Hebron settlers were a very divisive group within Israel. And exactly one month later, in November 1995, Rabin appeared at a massive rally in Tel Aviv. And when he descended the stage and walked out through the crowd, he was shot and killed by a man named Yigal Amir, who is a right-wing extremist who'd been planning the murder for two years. Arafat's widow blamed Netanyahu, who in the period after this uh, was kind of a pariah. Uh, and people were chanting all sorts of things about him now being responsible for Rabin's murder. But in that period of time, there was also a rise in suicide bombings, and Netanyahu recovered and wound up beating shortly after that Perez in the next election. And that ushered in a new phase, and that's a new phase that I'll talk about uh, in sort of next uh, episode of this sort of series of podcasts. And so I'll stop there to say, that's over an hour of history. Uh, I know it's a lot, uh, but part of what I wanted to do was say, look, no matter what my opinions are, about where we are today, you can't really point to any one of those periods of time and say, or or at least I choose not to, say this is the only fact that matters. And there's a long, long history. Uh, and in going back over this, I have to say it was extremely depressing. And there was one period of time after another where it, it felt like there was an opportunity for peace and it didn't happen. And I also think that this period of time that I'll talk about next is, I would say, perhaps the most depressing. This period of time between Oslo II and the end of the Clinton administration, when Bill Clinton brought Ehud Barak and Yasser Arafat together and was very close to getting a peace deal, and it didn't happen. And you know that period is basically the closest we've, we've ever gotten, and many people think the closest we will ever get. And so I'll just say that. I'll end there. Um, I know there's probably something I got wrong. I drew this uh, largely from just historical pictures uh, of the period um, from people with different sympathies. Um, and again, I, I apologize to anybody for not mentioning any one atrocity or event that happened. There's just so many of them. Uh, and if you like this, let me know. Uh, I'll keep going. I'll give the next series of history. And, and I will also dive into the, the current conflict. I've done it on other podcasts, but I'll make sure to do it for us too and give you my opinions on it. Uh, and on the Netanyahu government, Hamas, the invasion, the U.S. support, et cetera. 
So with that, thank you. Um, if you want resources on this, we can link to some in the show notes, but there's the book by Ian Black. It's called Enemies and Neighbors. Um, it's an excellent book. Um, a lot of people who are sympathetic to Palestinians and Israelis like this book. Um, if you want a longer and I would say more controversial read, Benny Morris's Righteous Victims, uh, which is a history from 1881 to uh, 2001, Morris has become a controversial figure, but uh, he is somebody who was controversial actually within Israel because he was the person who I think um, pulled up those records that were available in the 1970s uh, and that kind of, I think, challenged the the traditional Zionist view on the expulsions. Um, but he's, 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 I think he's become controversial to pro-Palestinian people recently too, but he's got a lot of primary source material in there. The, you know, obviously people who are sympathetic to the Palestinians like Khalidi's work. Um, the Frontline has done a lot of good documentaries on on the rise of Netanyahu, on the Oslo Accords, uh, about the Ehud Barak, Arafat, Clinton negotiations. There are some great documentaries there. Um, those are some of the sources that I've been, um, that I really like, but there's so many of them. So many of them. Uh, well, th with that, okay, I will I'll stop before I lose my voice. Um, thank you very much, everybody. Um, and uh, I will uh, get working on the next phase of this. <laughs> <laughs>